Welcome to Soulfield Conversations with Ferengis Sadagatpur. I want to thank the Soulfield Conversation community for reaching out and uh, sharing with me uh, what has opened up for them through the conversations that we've had so far. And a couple of components that I have realized that it's a must for these conversations to happen is number one, creating a space for the self, for each other, a space that's gentle, a space that's compassionate. And number two, to have permission, to give ourselves the permission to delve a little bit deeper into spaces where we have either put under the rug or have wanted to forget about because those moments, those times, those feelings, those uh, moments that we've traveled, they want to be redeemed and they want to be acknowledged and honored. And it is through entering into these spaces of great gentleness and care with great care and kindness that we can start even the healing process. And today we are going to delve into that. We are going to delve into a little bit about uh, healing. And as you know, as we all know, healing is a multifaceted, multidimensional process. And it is multidimensional because not only do we have a physical body, uh, but we have an emotional a mental, a spiritual body. And all these bodies are at all times communicating with each other. They are intertwined within each other. And as we open one knot in one of the bodies, it is bound to happen that the knots in the other areas are going to open up as well. And healing is a process in the medical world, we call it cure. And cure is just one aspect of it. In the integrative world, it's called healing uh, because healing takes into account the whole person, the complete person, uh, where the person has been, what they have done, what their journey has been about, where the knots have happened within the journey, the knots in the emotional body, the knots in the mental and uh, spiritual body. And the healer knows how to open these knots, um, has a keen insight into looking into where these knots can be opened. Today, we have a very special guest with us who through her journey of life and who she has become, has a keen insight into uh, people's knots and where they can be opened. She is a healer. Uh, she is a therapist. She is a psychologist. She um, has been able to integrate both the medical aspect of it and the spiritual aspect of it together. She's been able to bring it together. Her name is Dr. Mona Shanasatubian, and we are honored to have her here today. She has also, and she's going to talk about it herself uh, through the integration of all these uh, different modalities, she has been able to bring a concept together, soul work evolution, where she works with people in order to bring healing and uh, elevation into their life. 
Dr. Mona, welcome. Hi, it's my honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about where you have been, who you are, and what inspired you or what led you to be here today? Of course. Why I created the therapeutic methodology, Soul Work Evolution, is because of not only my own path of awakening and evolution, but also because I, for 20 years, would find that there were people who had done so much traditional psychotherapy and not received what they were looking for. Um, It was very much solely healing-based. So they would come in with a problem and need for that to be resolved or needed healing to take place in some area of their lives, which really focused them on the problems and the need for fixing. And the path of awakening, as I came to understand it through my own search and through my own uh, process, was and is a path where it's not so much about problem-focused orientation. It's not so much about healing what's broken necessarily. It's about a correction in your perspective. And it's about aligning with a purpose that allows you to open and awaken into your greater potential. And what I found with clients that were coming in who, you know, were expecting psychotherapy to be um, either problem focused or solution focused was that even when things were going right for them, which is when I always tell my clients, it's the best time to do this work. It's the best time to do soul work evolution. They would come in focused on looking for and preparing for the negatives. So as soon as we switched the orientation away from fixing or healing into epiphanies and awakening and excavating deeper that thing within you that needs to be revealed, needs to be exercised in this world and needs to guide you on your purpose. It was very interesting for me what happened in the fact that this idea of holistic psychology, this idea of coming together mind, body, and spirit, mind, body, and soul actually became something that actualized because then they were showing up looking to dig deeper. They were showing up looking to activate parts of themselves they were not allowing for before. They loved the process. And so they needed to keep finding problems to show up to a therapeutic modality that felt good for them. So when I then went back and decided that I was going to use quantum physics, you know, science, the science of psychology, as well as ancient wisdom, and find where I could bring these things together from a disciplined modality and create a new approach to psychology, you know, create soul work evolution where it's actually focused on the consciousness of man and what are the steps that a person goes through and what are the stages that a person goes through and what does it feel like when, you know, 
you're in stage one versus stage two and what are the characteristics and attributes and I actually decided to do it through a disciplined inquiry process of having professors and you know world-renowned psychologists and the American Psychological Association actually support and give its stamp of approval to this method it was that was the greatest journey of, of my life and that's what's brought me to this place where I feel so incredibly privileged to steward so many on this path of wellness and and you know evolution so you know I feel it's important to start from from that place and to really recognize the power of each individual human especially the woman as you know the woman truly is in many ways uh, the neck of their family you know she is maybe the underrated sometimes you know person in the family who decides where the head looks decides the direction connects the body with the with the mind and so you know we had talked a little bit about what my next step is in terms of my projects and the direction my private practice is going and one of the things that I'm really focused on doing is now pushing myself into a place where I'm launching women's therapy groups. And, you know, we can talk more about that, but it is the place where I have found healing, wellness, and community beyond anything I could ever imagine. Um, the individual sessions these women's come these women come, come to and attend are extraordinary they're epiphany based and they are consistently uh, moving into a place where they're connecting with themselves their highest purpose with uh, their past lives which are you know part of what directs and moves us forward into the themes of their lives but when they step into you know the women's groups which are often in addition to their personal sessions, that's when I begin to see them working with parts of themselves that they never, ever thought they could actualize, uh, especially in our community. I'm a Persian Jew. And as a Persian Jew, we often step into spaces where our uh, keeping face is, is the primary factor. And you would never open up in front of other Persian women. And, you know, everything about your life needs to be private. There's no transparency. And so women have often stepped away from this idea of women's group therapy sessions. And then I began to see people dip their toes in, start to open up, you know, sit quietly for a few months, and then begin to really see how our community is very different. And by virtue of sitting and listening to other people's issues or, you know, how do you moderate a uh, evolutionary enlightened path of enlightenment while still making sure you've got your face on right for that next party you need to go to, you know, right. um, or, you know, kind of the balance between the materialism that I think is, can be a sign of great success. We are one of the most successful immigrant communities to have ever, you know, had to move under, uh, under pressure. Um, so materialism, you can 
take it down the wrong road or you can utilize it to make great things happen in the world. So the, the, the things that we have begun to discover in these groups and the things I plan on hopefully continuing to discover in the you know additional three groups that I'm launching at the end of March is, is just truly, it's, it's been one of the greatest um, places of enlightenment for me personally. So I, I, I just feel like it's really important to bring back to this idea of women and our place in society and how much not only our own healing or our own uh, awakening process, consciousness expansion process depends on our own personal path, but how much our children's, how much our parents' and our husbands, you know, their enlightenment process often relies on our path. So Correct. it's, All it's right. an interesting tidbit that we often feel like the, or have historically felt like the underrated gender. And here we are basically in many ways, holding the fate of our families. And in many ways, you know, from a spiritual angle, the world in, in our hands and in our own personal healing. Yes, 100%. Um, that's fascinating that your work, as you said, is not about healing or about correcting anything or mending anything, but rather excavating the, the light within and stepping into that light and working from there, working from the light that um, has been God-given uh, to you from birth and excavating that and from there doing the work that you need to do and everything else will fall into place, basically. So that's incredible. And that's, uh, that's amazing. Both, I believe for women, especially the, the women of our community being where we have been and what we have endured, what we have taken on from generations uh, as a heritage uh, of, our, of our psyche and also trying to step into a space where it has never been really walked before. So thank you for being a trailblazer in bringing not only healing, because apparently with this work, healing comes as a result of it. Thank you for being a trailblazer in bringing everyone into, into your sessions or who come into your work uh, into an elevated state so that they can walk into their potential. They can actualize the light to bring it down into the physical world and, and walk with that, walk with that light as their best friend, as who they are, and not really their history as who they are, not their broken places as who they are, not their hurt places as who they are, but identify with themselves as the purpose, who they can be, and step into that. Incredible. That's really fascinating. What's more fascinating is how you got to be here. Can you share a little bit of that for us? Because, or you were already in the revolution 
And, you know, you, you came here to United States with your parents and still having the ideology of the past, but wanting to step into the new. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? How did that uh, come about? How did that work for you? Absolutely. Yeah, I am, you know, one of those Persian Americans that am in love with my Persianness. Mm-hmm. I study our culture. I love our culture, even the the funny bits and the nuances. Uh, we have a family group chat, and one of my nieces sent a hysterical little tidbit about you know how there's so much stuff about like you know the the Persian markets in in LA, and you know the the old ladies come go, going down the aisles and elbowing people and popping grapes in their mouth, and you know this particular one was was you know about all the complaints and about you know how you know sampling two or three grapes is is sampling but when you're shoving 20 in your mouth in 30 seconds you know that's no longer sampling and you know he he was he was one of these like he was complaining and everybody on the on the chat was laughing and he was like next time you go in you know, into, into one of these markets, you can't go without a helmet with horns sticking out of it. And for me, who is like, you know, a a total student at all times, that's, I think I, 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 if I had to define myself by something more than anything else, I would, I, that's what I would call myself. I'm constantly studying and, and I'm constantly studying our culture and, and just where does our, our love of beautiful things come from? Well, it comes from like, we're part of that peacock throne. We are part of that uh, sort of exemplary love of beautiful things. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're only materialistic. It's, it's, there's two sides to everything. And so I wrote back to this thing on the chat and I talked about like how incredible that a person can go to a Persian supermarket and find community. You, you're finding community there. You're walking down aisles and okay, maybe the person behind you needs to wait a minute because you just ran into somebody you saw last night at a wedding, but you're stopping to kiss them hello. That's beautiful. There's a connectivity there, in my opinion. And there is, what do we need as humans to thrive in the world? We need touch. We need, we need connection. We need to coexist in a close space. And all of that, especially during this time of Corona, has been taken away from us. We have been asked to quarantine. We've been asked to increase the spaces between us. We've been asked to not touch, not kiss. And as Persians, as kind of the warm-blooded of, of you know, the communities and the cultures, we need, you know, even if it's having a little elbow, you know, bang into us or braze against our body as we're walking down an aisle, that is a sense of touch that actually brings healing. That's a place where if somebody is going and they're popping 20 grapes in their mouth, as opposed to a few, I mean, I don't support the, the, the habit. And obviously I'm not supporting, you know, any kind of theft, but that's, that's a sense of like being among family. That's a sense of of, you know, coming together with in a place where you feel so comfortable, you're just like, you know, we're, we're all, we're all family here, and you're, oh, you're yes. hanging out. And so, you know, and, and I ended my little post by saying, we should wear helmets with a horn, because as far as I'm concerned, we're, we're unicorns, we're the <laughs> unicorns of the species. So it was, 
so I was born in Iran. I am very tied to, you know, the mystical land that that was. And I really, really had quite a, now looking back in retrospect, an, an extraordinary beginning to, to my life where I am one of the few people I know who came into the world unwitnessed because uh, my mom was fully anesthetized. She was put under full anesthesia uh, because she had a difficult birth with her first one. And back then they used to put you fully out. There was no like waist down situation with epidurals. And, and I was early. I was in a rush back then, just like I, I'm, I'm always <laughs> in a rush. I'm, I'm a big, I'm, I'm a big sort of time walker, so to speak. And, um, you know, really value this sanctity of time. And so I couldn't wait any longer. And so my dad was not present. Uh, my mom was out and I was kind of born into the world unwitnessed. Oh, wow. And by the time my dad found out and word was gotten to him and he came to, to the hospital and people found out and whatnot, he had gotten it in his mind that he wanted to have my birthday be one where I would step into the world and it would look like the world was lighting up to celebrate my birthday. And in Iran, that happened on the Shah's birth, uh, his son's birthday, who had was born apparently in the same room by the same doctors. I mean, this is like the story, right? That's been passed down for right. 50 years, right? Wow. And so he changed my birthday to match that of his. So to this day, I actually don't know what time I was born. I oh, don't wow. know whether my birthday was a few days earlier. But what's interesting is that that, put, that began my search. That right. began my search because, of course, if you're mystically oriented and if you have a spiritual sort of sense to you, you understand that maybe not in the way that it's not American astrology, but there is such a thing as astrological signs and time periods. And, you know, and so you need to know when you were born to be able to like align yourself. Right. <laughs> I could never do that. Right. And so it increases the search. And then on top of that, I was somehow, you know, Every baby that's born into the world is connected, right? You're more connected to source than you are to this plane that you're born into. And it's by virtue of uh, growing and being programmed that you begin to detach from source and find your footing in this new plane of existence as an embodied person. And so the process is supposed to be where you... You, you begin to lose touch with the life you had before and you begin to move into now this new life that you're supposed to have. But every baby comes in with extrasensory perception. They can feel you. They can see your energy field. their psychic ability there. They're connected to their ancestors and those who they were with just a few minutes before they were born. So this is not such a out there woo-woo thing. It's just kind of almost like parapsychology, like it's almost something that almost every ancient wisdom teaching and even most religions believe. And then you're programmed out of that as you are become older and people want you to be normal, normal, whatever that means and that means. fit in, you know, fit in right. and not be a sense of divergence out of the norm and out of the masses. Somehow, 
there are people in the world who that sort of that programming process doesn't fully work. They, they maintain their connectivity and they maintain those things that they were born into the world with. And this world tends to call those people gifted. But in our community back then, we called those people crazy. Right. <laughs> we call them gifted. <laughs> we call, you know, we viewed them as nuts. <laughs> so, so it became this thing for me where I began to really understand this outside persona that needed to be presented so that I wouldn't embarrass my, my, my parents and I would be normal and I could make them proud while somehow hiding the inner persona of my differentness, my connectivity, whatever you want to call it. I, I don't like calling it giftedness because I believe everybody has access to that. Right. So that's part of this work. Part of, part of soul work evolution is as you expand your consciousness and align with the light, you are going back to reclaiming those parts of you that you released for one reason or another. And so my life became very much about exile and belonging, where you can't fully feel completely immersed in any kind of society or community or friend group when there is this huge integral part of you that you have been trained to hide because what are, what are people going to think again, especially right. back then, right. but how, how auspicious that I, I landed in Los Angeles, which is like the leading cutting edge woo woo, woo woo capital of the world. You right. want to find people who can accept these kinds of, you know, I not not always great, but it, it gave me the freedom to explore. And then how auspicious that the the date that my father just so happened to pick as my birthday when we were in Iran was Halloween. So really, um, that's a, yeah. That's so all of these like little things that kind of aligned with that mystical quality that I resonated most with became little cues and little sort of breadcrumbs along this path of, of discovery and enlightenment for me. And my searches, they became sort of those epic pieces to my journey. You know, when we were talking before, I, I told you, I mean, I kind of worked as a sheep herder in Wales at one point in my life, being a midwife to birthing sheep into the world and sleeping under the stars and having that reprieve from living within any kind of society where I had to put on a mask. I walked from Southeast Asia, from Singapore through Malaysia, through Thailand, all the way up to the North where I had the opportunity to spend months in 18 hour meditations. Wow. Sitting at the feet of some of the most wise monks in the world. I had the opportunity to, to study yoga and Ayurvedics in India in different ashrams for extended periods of time and so on for, for many, many years of my life. And, and all of these things really served to help me actualize the things within myself that as a kid, the only place I could find any kind of differentness 
that matched mine in the world were in my superhero comics. So I would read these superhero <laughs> comics wow. and, you know, they had like, they had some kind of extrasensory perception that they had to hide. They couldn't put that out in the mm-hmm. world and mm-hmm. they were, they were good, but they also felt a little lonely. Right. And they were, they were here to sort of help humanity from what looked to me back then, like in, from an enlightened path. And so I created my own little superhero Bible, I called it, when I was like seven. And I would take all the bits and themes from these different comics. That was where I was learning wisdom from. And I was bringing these wisdom teachings together. I could understand a little bit more. Why was I different? Why could I sort of experience certain things that other people were either not admitting to being able to experience or couldn't. And that was part of my search. And a few years later, when large part of my life was spent in libraries to this day, my favorite, you know, my, one of my favorite things in the world are, are books. They're kind of like the savior, I feel, in, in this world. And I'd spent my time in libraries. I came up I came upon Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. And at like seven, eight years old, I I picked up my first Zen book. And that was just like, my brain exploded with, oh my goodness, there's actually books written with wisdom in them that can teach you how to travel your path on this plane. So then went from the superhero comics to uh, ancient wisdom, whether it was Buddhism or or Kabbalah, or uh, even mysticism from different paths, Christianity, other paths. And I just kind of devoured everything I could get my hands on while I was home. And when I got older, it was always about finding somebody being called to go somewhere to sit at the foot of some master or teacher at some place, remote location in the world that now in retrospect, when I think about, I, I, I don't even understand how I had the wherewithal or the, the guts to get there. <laughs> and I mean, some of, some of my journeys were kind of, I don't know, I, I guess, I guess you would say dangerous, but I didn't feel danger at, the, at those times. I just felt the calling and total protection from the universe to get and arrive to where I needed to go. And um, it, it, adventures, huge epic adventures where there was a lot of very intense moments of training where it wasn't just arriving and sitting and listening to studies, but actual physical training. And in order to be masters, what they call a master meditator, there was sitting in in forests with bugs and tarantulas and things crawling over you and being able to to be so deep in meditation that you don't flinch as these things are crawling, crawling all over you. I mean, there was, there were, (laughs) so there was a lot of physical sort of training as well. You know, another part of my search, you asked me to talk about a little bit about my journey was spending time in Nepal and finding myself in, in Nepal and getting more and more sort of consumed by their culture where 
a short trip turned into a longer and longer trip. And I ended up being connected with sort of their underground mystical sort of teachers. And this is long ago before their earthquake and and kind of learning the concept of energy dynamics from them and learning a little bit about some of their monks. They have, they, I mean, incredible things like that are hard, hard to sort of even talk about because they're so, it's so hard to believe that things like this exist in the world, but they, they have a group of monks that are historically known, but very sort of secret uh, Po. they're called the Po runners. And they have learned to master energy dynamics to such an incredible degree that they are able to basically contort time and energy, time and space to what, what it looks like is they're flying. So they can essentially fly, but what it is is that they're taking these huge long leaps over ground in a way that allows them to travel long distances in very short time. And because they have learned how to master energy dynamics, for example, um, to such a great degree, they are able to modulate their heartbeat, their their blood pressure. They're able to modulate it in a way where they can move through space and time in that kind of rapid fashion. Well, what I found interesting is that as unbelievable as that may be, in all my research and sort of scholarly digging into these aspects of mysticism and human dynamics and human potential, I found that these, the same concept existed for Jewish Sadiqim. There were just certain Jewish Sadiqim that were known and seen by human eyes to have been able to do the same exact thing where they could travel long distances and it, but it's not, so it's not magic, right? It's not magic. It is somebody who's able to tap into the fabric of time and space and learn how to utilize right energy dynamics and quantum physics in a way where it's almost like the shaman of the Amazon who can shapeshift. So when you find these things existing across different cultures and across different times, whether it is something as magnificent and unbelievable as the ability for a human being to fly, or whether it's the idea of somebody who's able to change cellular molecular biology to the point where they can shapeshift into something other than human and then shapeshift back. When you begin to study the underlying sort of science of some of these things, and I know this is going out there, at some point it expands your consciousness where you can hold space for it and you begin to understand. So if there is a science to this, and I'm actually studying the science to this, it's not just something that is, and, and it exists across cultures. So it exists in, right. in our lineage and another. So it, it really exposes you into and forces you into the realm of all possibilities. It, it, it breaks open any perception or consciousness of a limited existence or, or, or a limited potentiality or human walls where there's, there's only so far that you can go. 
if, if these are possibilities that other humans in the world have achieved, then who, who, why would we put any kind of limitation on our own potential? We may not be destined to be long-term pole runners, but there are other psychological or spiritual limitations that we put on ourselves. And so that opened up my journey to this whole realm of optimal performance and potential and what that actually truly means, not what people say in terms of, okay, sit all day in your chair and visualize and meditate. Right. Uh, Dr. Mona, uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, part of your journey with us. I feel like we can sit here for hours and hours to talk about all the things that you have gone through and how each one has expanded your consciousness and your vision. Nowadays, we talk about the path to enlightenment and how how we can reach there. How do we reach enlightenment? It seems to me that everything that you've done from reading the comics to being in the library to being in Nepal to to having all these walks, the meditations, everything that you have done and every path that you have uh, traveled to has been in order to reach that space of enlightenment. If you can tell us in in a few words, what does it take for a person to reach that path of enlightenment? And is it a possibility for everyone? It's a, it's a great question that's hard to answer in a few words, but if I had to answer as simply as possible, I would say the two most important things that would complete the path towards uh, an enlightened being is one is ego relinquishment. So there's no way you can walk the path or do the work or connect, even truly connect with the light when you are sitting in ego or coming from a place of not having done serious ego work or from psychological terms, shadow work. And two, if you live according to what some of our great sages have said historically in our Jewish tradition, which is living according to the ideal of do no harm. Whereas most people in this world live according to the ideal of do good, but they have no education, they have ethical education, right? So they haven't studied morality, they haven't studied the great ones. And so their perception of what they're doing to be good is often something that they don't see the results of the incredible butterfly effect of potential harm that they're often doing in the world. So to switch from a mind frame of their own personal ideology of good to a grounded ideology of, of good, whatever their lineage is. So whatever their wisdom teachings teach, even if it doesn't make sense to them to align themselves with those ethical mores and values and to really have a filter in terms of every word that comes out of their mouth, every step they take, for it to be the filter of really of do no harm rather than do good, which is very much aligned with ego for most people. Mm. So that's, that's what I would, if I had to 
reduce it into the the smallest kind of wisdom teaching that that I can pass on from I would I would bring it down to those two big things. Yeah, well, each one it's huge unto itself. The shadow work, and uh, I, I believe we can spend a lifetime just doing shadow work. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> to uncover all those shadows. Yeah. Um, and also the the second thing that you you brought into uh, our awareness, from what I am seeing, doctor, and from the life that I have seen you have led is that it's so important to embrace who you are at the time, because it's all those moments that lead you to where you need to go. And it seems to me that you were born with a sense of purpose, knowing from right the beginning that you are here to bring about expansion, to bring about awareness, to step into enlightenment yourself, but through that process, bring other people with you. It seems, it seems to me as we are having this conversation that you always had this sense of knowing, this sense of purpose. However, when one is young, we cannot really decipher it, we cannot discern it, and it had needed to be embodied. So therefore, from what I'm seeing from your life journey is the embracing that you did with each step and where you needed to be at the time, that it has brought you one by one, step by step, through ups and downs to the soul work that you are doing at this moment in time. You could have not known it necessarily from the beginning, but really the fact that you embraced, you felt protected, you felt safe going on all these journeys you embraced it, you gave yourself permission, you allowed for it, uh, you made time for it. And I feel like the acknowledgement and the embracing of each step is such a necessary, such a necessary step into the path of knowing oneself, number one, and then uh, extending into enlightenment. Again, I, I'd love to, to sit here middle age and, and say, I, I knew with every step. It's just not true. It's not, the, it's not fact. It is, we, we talked a little bit about the idea of loneliness in your search for belonging and the sense of exile, as, as I call the spectrum of loneliness that people live on. And no, I mean, a, a good portion of my search and a good portion of my life was very much not knowing. It was very much trusting in my connection to source. It was, it was very much stepping consistently into areas of abyss and places where it, it was terrifying to, to step off the proverbial cliff and into absolute darkness and into places that were beyond terrifying. My training with the, the monk that I had to travel for days to get to in Nepal required that I actually travel for, for days on bike in on, on like roads with no signage, with no, you know, the, no construction, no, nothing. For example, I mean, this is this is an actual experience 
that was very, very much a reflection of how far I was willing to go to sort of heed the call, right? This, this calling that was coming from within my soul. And I, I write about this in, in the book that I'm, I'm writing right now. And, and I remember when I was actually writing the story, it was like, I was thinking about it for the first time. And I started shaking in retrospect, whereas when I was there, I was so determined to be on the journey and didn't even know what the journey was, that I was on this cliff that was as, as tall as what, what felt like an Everest to me. And there was probably less than a foot of space on this, on this side of this cliff. And I'm walking along the side of a mountain with a mountain bike. I'm walking it because I'm terrified to get on it and ride it. And it's like after days of traveling, exhaustion, hunger, thirst, you name it, suddenly out of nowhere, because I'm, I'm just going, I'm putting my head down and I'm taking one step in front of another and I'm trusting something other than myself, something other than myself, not myself. This is not a story of like, I knew when I was born and <laughs> not at all. This was like, like claw and crawl and, and like enjoy the process while I'm doing it because I had the will of youth and, uh, and the stupidity of youth. I mean, thank God for that. Right. <laughs> and, you know, but it's much more a story about that. And in the midst of, of my feeling, like if I don't find someone today, if I don't arrive to where these people want me to go, that I'm meant to go to learn what I'm meant to learn, this is where I will die. Literally, it was that was it. And then suddenly I see from across this abyss between these two mountains that I'm standing, I see the monk that I'm supposed to arrive to, to train with, take a mirror and start shining it to, to get my attention. And that, wow. and that's when I was like found in, I mean, and think of where I was, because that is such a symbol of, of how life works. I, I was at the edge of life and death, literally, literally within hours, if the sun would have gone down, that would have been the end of my journey in this lifetime. Wow. And out of nowhere in a million years, because you couldn't see the caves to which I was walking to out of nowhere, okay, this person comes out, and I can't even see the person, but I have to trust that this, this blinker is, is the sign as to where I need to go. Well, that's how life works, isn't it? It's, yes. it's these still small voices beneath, if you're aware and awake long enough, keep your eyes open, so that you can see, oh, where there's my next stepping stone. There's, there's that, it looks like a total abyss of darkness in front of me. I don't see anything. I don't know where I'm meant to go. But if I just take that next step, the next one will appear, right? And it's cliched, right. but it's so true. Right. So right. thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that calling, that inner calling. You don't know where you're stepping into. And it looks dark in front of you, but that's that the inner calling yeah. that gave you the sense of safety and the, the sense of will to go forward to something that you really don't know what you're stepping into. And the differentiation between inner as you and inner as something light, which right. is beyond you. That differentiation is essential. Yes. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Mona. Uh, you have given us so much to walk away with. I feel like we're going to have a couple of more conversations. <laughs> it would, it would but be for my this, pleasure. Uh, but for this conversation, is there something else you would like to share? You, something you would like us to take away from this conversation? One well, last I, I, I really, really believe that it's critical, critical for people to find a guide through the wilderness of their life, so to speak. And we're all in it. And without teachers, without masters, it's impossible to travel this road on your own. And so whatever you do in life to find a teacher, to find somebody that you align with and trust and someone that you seek to do this work with is, is what I will leave your, your listeners with. You are not meant to travel this road alone. You are not meant and anytime anyone believes that this is their, the, their personal path to travel this road alone and they don't seek out a therapist or a teacher or a soul working guide, uh, that is, I believe, them being an ego. That is them not being able to give the, up their fear and step into a place where they may have to do a little bit of hard soul searching. But so... You cannot walk the path alone. You you need you need a, a you know wilderness guide, so to speak, and and to seek seek one out that you align with and that you you want to work with that you feel will hold your hand through the journey and give you tough love when needed and soften things up for you when you're needed. Uh, thank you so much. If our listeners would like to uh, connect with you, where where can they reach you? They're more than welcome to peruse my website, uh, which is, uh, they can go on that at, at monas2bn.com. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, Mona Shanasa Tubian. You know, they're, they're more than welcome. I tend to check the, um, the website more often. And um, yeah, there'll, there'll be event news and whatnot there. They're more than welcome. I do my best to reach out and reach back out to anyone who wants to contact me. But I feel there's also a lot of, there's a lot of people who are waking up and starting to do this work out there. And it doesn't need to be me. It can be yes. anyone that you align with. But the most important thing that I, I think, you know, when you pick a teacher or a guide is that they are grounded in something bigger than them, that mm -hmm. it is not there. They had a, a, you know, this epiphany or wake up or whatever. And, and so that now they've got these gifts and powers that they're bringing to the forefront that they mm -hmm. are teaching you through. It's, it is, it is their lineage. It's a, it's a, um, whether it's a, it's a wisdom teaching or a, a religious perspective or a philosopher whose books have existed through time and have been proven to be like ethical anchors within our society, I really, really want to leave your listeners with please do your due diligence because there are so many people out there who are not grounded in something bigger than them. And so then what the lineage that's passed on is often misaligned. So whoever you do choose to work with. And I do 
believe everyone needs someone to work with. It's important for the ego work to be done, and it's important for them to be grounded in something bigger than themselves and guided by that. Wow! Thank you so much. I, I don't think I had ever heard that the way that you brought it forth that the the teacher that we seek should be grounded in something greater than themselves. And this is such an important, important guideline, because there are so many out there that they have the gift, but are not really grounded into anything. And, uh, and so it can bring misalignment, and not only for themselves, but also for the for the people who are who they're trying to guide. And I have seen that. So yeah, thank you so much for that. That's a very, very important guideline that you have just given us. Thank you, Dr. Mona. Thank you for sharing your precious time with us. It's, uh, it has been an honor. I'm sure we're going to have more conversations um, on this. Thank you for giving us your wisdom and giving us a lot to walk away with, um, bringing it forth to our own life and hopefully finding those teachers and the guides that we need in order to step into our own light without ego. <laughs> it's, it's, my, it's my absolute pleasure. It's, and I know that you're in New York, but one of my uh, students is graciously opening her home to anyone who's interested in learning more on April 3rd. And for if you want to put it out there that for anyone who's in LA, who's interested in, in attending sort of a uh, one day woman's retreat, she is um, hosting that at her home. And that sounds I, so exciting. Yeah. So if, that, that sounds really exciting. Yeah, really sure. Exciting. So if people are interested in learning more or seeing a little bit more about how I work and you know, getting some good food and yoga in the meantime, she's an incredible yoga teacher. So that's, that's one way of learning a little bit more about this work. Sounds intriguing and amazing and uh, look forward to hearing more about your work Thank in the you near so future. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you to the audience. Uh, this is Soul Filled <laughs> Conversations with Ferengi Sadagatpur. I want to thank the community, the expansive community. And as I started, thank you for all your responses and sharing what you think about the different podcasts. Let it continue and let uh, the conversation continue. I'm blessed to be here with all of you and uh, blessed to be part of this openings and the evolution at this time of our lives. My love to all of you. Thank you. Mm-hmm.